Well, good morning, church. Anybody excited about Jesus this morning? All right, that's okay. What about the rest of y'all? Are we excited about the Lord this morning? Amen. Amen. He woke us up. Amen. I, I'm excited about this moment. Um, thank you to the Reverend Dr. Jimmy Long for allowing me to, uh, to come and preach. From what I hear, he doesn't give this spot up to very often. So I respect the moment that I'm in, and I thank you for it. Um, yeah, we're going to jump right in God's word. I don't have a lot of time. Um, I can remember growing up in church and man, we'd be in church all day. I mean, all day. And I was like, I need this preacher to be like Pharaoh and let God's people go. Like I'm, I'm ready to get on out of here. So I will not be long this morning. I'm going to share God's word with you and we will get on. But real quick, like he said, there's some stuff out in the foyer about FCA. Um, just three things real quick. You can pray for our ministry. Um, pray that we would hear God's voice, that we would do his will. Um, you can serve. There's so many things I have that I need help with. Um, I, we're starting new Bible studies all the time. We've got leadership teams, and I need some help. And the third thing you can do is give. That's right. You can give, okay? You can bless his ministry. Some of y'all have been blessed. Y'all can cut a check and fund our whole scholarships. You could do it, all right? So if you want to, I'll be right out there, okay? So that's that with FCA. Um, so if you turn to Numbers chapter 21, we're just going to go straight Bible this morning. Um, there's no points really up on the, on the screen. You've got a blank page of notes, and you can dig right into that. But I just want you to really press in with me this morning um, and really allow God to speak to you. Um, it's an Old Testament passage, and I, I love preaching Old Testament passages. I absolutely love it. And, and a lot of people look at the Old Testament as something that's not needed um, but I disagree. It's like saying you want to get to outer space, but you don't want a spaceship to get you there. You can't get one without the other. And the Old Testament launches us into the New Testament. Um, and so we're going to look at Numbers chapter 21. Now, this message for us today is going to do one of three things, depending on who you are and where you are at this moment. Either this message is going to motivate you to keep doing what you've been doing. It's going to motivate you to go out and want to serve and want to be missional and continue to preach the gospel like you have been doing. This message is just simply going to motivate you even more. There's also some people in here that you will hear this message and your heart will be hardened this morning. You might get offended this morning. There's also a third person that you will remain indifferent. You will hear this and you will go back home and you'll keep doing what you've been doing, which is not much of anything. So one of those three. But regardless, I'm going to preach the gospel. And I pray that your heart will be softened to receive this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you context for verses 1 through 3. And then I'm going to jump in and read verse 4. Okay? So we're looking at the children of Israel this morning. We're picking up in this story. And and you guys know the history of the children of, of Israel. They were enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. That's a long time to be a slave. Right. And so they're immersed in this culture, in this Egyptian culture. And it's so much to the point to where they don't really look like Hebrews anymore. They don't talk like Hebrews anymore. They don't worship like Hebrews anymore. They don't eat like them. They look more like Egyptians than they do Hebrews because they've been enslaved for over 400 years. And so God in his grace and his mercy and his providence and his sovereignty, he leads them out of Egypt. And we know the story through the desert, the the the. The, the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, they split the Red Sea, their clothes never wear down, they've got fresh manna coming from heaven every single day, right? And so they're on the latter part of the 40 years when we pick up in this story. 
And they're getting ready to go to Canaan, which is the promised land. And they're approaching it, but there's a problem that happens. There's an issue. As they're approaching Canaan, the the Canaanite king gets word that the, the children of Israel are on the way to take over Canaan. And they're going through this particular path called Atherim. Now, that just simply means the way of the spies. And this particular path that God had them go on, God sent them this way in this direction intentionally. The reason he had them go this path was to go around a place called Edom. Edom was a hostile territory towards Israel. They did not like them. They wanted to kill them. They wanted to destroy them. And so God, knowing that, sends them around this place on purpose. But this journey that they're taking is not a fun one. I mean, it's called the way of the spies. It's a, it's a wilderness. It's a desolate place. I mean, they're already in the wilderness, but this place is just like the wilderness wilderness. And they're having to go around. And what they do is the, the Canaanite king gets word, and he sends some of his army, some of his guys to go and attack Israel before they get to Canaan. And so he sends some guys, and they end up warring a little bit. And the Canaanite king ends up taking some of the Israelites captive. So what happens? The Israelites... They're in trouble. What do they do? They turn to God. God, help us. And what they do is they say, God, if you give us this victory, I vow that we will, we will put their cities to destruction. We vow to it. It's just like us when we get in trouble. It's time to start bargaining with God, ain't it? God, if you just give me this one thing, you just give me this job, you just give me this whatever, I promise you I'll go to church on Sunday. I promise you I'll go to Bible study. I promise you I'll do it. And especially in athletics, which is what I work with, man, we try to bargain with God. God, if you give us this win, I mean, I promise you, you know, I'll do whatever. We, we speaking in tongues and get baptized and trying to do all these things to get a win. And then once we get the win, we forget about God. Always trying to bargain with God. So what does God do? The Bible says he heeds to their voice and he gives them the victory anyway. He gives them the victory. Now, understand also that Canaan was a very paganistic place. And the reason they said they were going to devote their city to destruction is because they did not serve the one and true living God. They did not serve Yahweh. They were giving their kids to sacrifices to false gods. They were committing bestiality. All these crazy things in Canaan. Side note, I think it's very interesting that in this city, Greensboro, there's a particular place over there called Canaan. Side note, just think about that for a minute. And so we pick up in verse... Four. It reads, and follow along with me. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food And no water, and we loathe this worthless food. They're complaining. They become impatient. And the interesting thing is if you look back 10 chapters at Numbers 11, between Numbers 11 and Numbers 21, six different times they complained to Moses and to God about their condition and situation. Six different times. Times. In Numbers 11 in particular, they look to God and say, uh, look to Moses and to God and say, We're tired of this worthless food. We want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back to where we got garlics and leek and bread and, and the free fish that we had. We want to go back to get that free fish, that free food. But they were overlooking one small detail. They were slaves back in Egypt. 
They were slaves. And this is how you know the culture was so ingrained in them is because they wanted to go back and they did not see themselves as slaves. They did not because they had, their, their psyche had been so beat down to where they believed I'm a slave and that's who I'm supposed to be. So they began to birth slaves and raise slaves and work as slaves and eventually they died as slaves. And they wanted free fish. That's some expensive fish if you really look at it. They were slaves. And so they begin to gossip and complain. And so I look at this story and I look at this text and I say, okay, with, with the children of Israel, there were a lot of people. There were several million. Some people say between two and four million. Some other people say between four and six million. Either way, it's a lot of people, right? And so I'm thinking, you know, in the text we see the people that are complaining, but there's got to be some folks in there that didn't complain. There's got to be some people in there that saw the miracle of God, saw his hand at work, and said, you know what? I've seen God work before, and I'm trusting him. Yes, I'm going through the wilderness. I don't completely understand this. My feet hurt. You know, I, I, I do not want to do this, but I'm trusting God that he's going to lead me to the promised land. There had to be some people in there, but why do they not get mentioned? It's because what you have is, is you have some people that are beginning to gossip and complain And their goal and intention is to make you think and feel the way they think and feel. That's their ultimate goal. That's what they want to do. All right? So what you got is you got Mr. Leroy here. He's saying, you know what? I'm kind of tired of this manna. I'm tired of eating this stuff. I've been eating it, and it ain't really working out and agreeing with my stomach, you know? It ain't really working out. And so I'm kind of tired of this manna eating this stuff. And then Leroy looks over at Johnny Boy, and he says, Johnny Boy, you know what? I'm tired of this manna, man. I don't really like eating it. And Johnny Boy says, you know what, Leroy? Now that you mention that, I don't really like that manna either. You know what else I don't like? This sand is hot. I got corns on my toes. I've been walking all this way, and I am sick and tired of this. And then what does Johnny Boy do? He looks over at Rufus. And he says, Rufus, I don't like this manna or this sand. You don't either, do you? Rufus says, you know what, Johnny Boy? Now that you mention that, I don't really like it either. You know what else I don't like? We ain't got no water. I'm thirsty. It's hot out here. These vultures are soaring around trying to get a free meal off of us. And then what does Rufus do? He looks over at Cletus and he says, Cletus, I don't really like this man of this sun. We ain't got no water. You don't like it either, do you? And Rufus says, now that you mention that, what about Moses? I mean, does he not know how to work a GPS system? I mean, we're out here lost and wandering around. What is he doing? And then it keeps going, it keeps going. And then everybody's going, well, and another thing, let me mention this too, what I don't like. And they begin to gossip and complain. And before you know it, they done formed a union. And they're going up to Moses and talking about, man, we don't like these conditions. We're upset. And it grows and it grows and it grows. But listen, church, we are not far removed from that because that's us too. We have complaints in this church this morning. You know what? We stay in church a little bit too long. And then they talk to somebody else. You know what? I really don't like the, the carpet and the temperature ain't set quite how I like it. And somebody's sitting in the seat and stole my parking spot. And you keep going on and going on until eventually it grows and it grows and it grows. And gossip begins to create dissension. But you know the best way to end gossip in the church is to quit doing it. Stop doing it. And don't listen to it. Because it begins to grow in the intent, remember, of that person is to get you to think and to feel the way they think and feel. If they can get you to do that, then they feel like they've won. 
And so they begin to gossip and complain, and it's the same for us today. But it's interesting to me how they look at the faithfulness of God, the continual faithfulness of God to bring them out every single day, and they look at it and literally say, I hate it. God, I hate what you are constantly and faithfully providing for me day in and day out. I'm tired of it. This worthless manna. God, your constant faithfulness to show up every single day, I'm tired of it. I'm sick of it. God, I got this job, this, this job, and I'm working it, and I'm driving this Honda, and the person next to me has got a Lexus. This, a Honda is all I can get. I got this five-bedroom house, but my neighbor's got a six-bedroom house and a garage and a basement. This house is all I can get. God, I've got this job. You provided for me faithfully day in and day out to pay my bills, but I don't have marginal income. Is this all I can get? People of God, listen to me. Be careful how you scoff at the faithfulness of God and relegate it to pure commonality. Be careful about that. Because we look at the faithfulness of God as something as simple as waking up in the morning and breathing a breath and walking and your feet working and your body working. We look at that and say, "Eh, that's normal. And we relegate it to pure commonality. But God has continually been faithful to us. He's continually blessing us, but we can't see it because we're focused on something else instead of on the Savior. And that's a problem. And that's us here today. In verse 6, let's pick up right there. It says, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people in Israel died. So God, he sends fiery serpents. It bites the people, and many people die. Ladies and gentlemen, we are snake-bitten. Our generation is snake-bitten. Satan has sunk his teeth into our culture and our generation, and he's trying to suck the life out of us. It goes back to Adam and Eve in the garden. The serpent is representative of sin, right? And so as soon as Adam and Eve took the bite of that fruit, what happens? They're snake bit. They're snake bit in that moment. And you look at Satan, how he lived in the form of a serpent. And then you go up to the New Testament and you look at God speaking to Mary or the angel speaking uh, to Mary through God and saying, Your seed or his seed will bite your heel, but your seed will crush his head. That's representative of sin. But ultimately, we win because Jesus won. Amen? And so you look at that, that snake that's representative of sin and of Satan, and he's trying to bite us. He's bit this culture, but here's the problem. The problem is when he sunk his teeth into the church. And the problem is when we don't look any different from the world. That's the problem. We don't look any different. I mean, if any of y'all were part of Black Friday, y'all know that's chaotic, right? I mean, if you cut off the wrong lady, Sister Betty Jo, she'll smack you with her purse and say, God bless you, and keep walking. <laughs> right? She will. Like, and there's, no, there's no difference. We can't tell the difference. Our spending habits are no different than the world. There's a stat that came out that says 6% of church folk tithe. 6%. Only 6%. And I could go out here to a person that is not saved, that cares nothing about God, and they can be just as generous as any Christian I've ever met. And there's a problem whenever a Christian who's covered by grace will not do more than a sinner who is under the law. Because that is a shame to grace. And that is a problem. We don't look any 
different. We're not excited about God. You know why I know we're not excited about God? Because we don't talk about him. You talk about what you're excited about. Why? Because you can't keep it to yourself. You can't. But here's the problem. We're not excited about our salvation because some of us kind of forgot about our salvation. We forgot about the moment we came to Christ and how we were desperate for him and crying out for him and on our knees and saying, God, save me, pleading with God, saying, save my life. You've forgotten about it. Listen, David said this in Psalm 51. He said, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. In other words, he's saying, take me back to when I first believed. Give me my joy back to to know what you saved me from and the depth of my depravity to know that I was lost. I was wretched. I was a sinner. I had no hope, but Jesus became and he was the hope for me and he lifted me up. And that's the joy of my salvation when I think back on it. Because when you think about that kind of joy, when you think about what Christ has done for you, you can't keep it to yourself. You cannot. And here's the thing. Guys like me have done y'all a disservice. Because what we do is we make salvation about you and not about God. Because here's what it is. Here's what we say, okay? We say, all right, here's a salvation experience. Here's an illustration. You were out there in the ocean and you were drowning. You were struggling. You were sinking fast and trying to breathe and trying to pull yourself up on the water. And you were sinking fast and sinking fast. And then what happens is Jesus, he shows up. He shows up with a raft and he throws it out there to you and he says, grab on. And you grab on that thing and you're fighting and pulling with everything you got. And Jesus, he grabs a hold of that rope and he's pulling you in and he's sweating. He's got slobber coming out of his mouth and he's fighting to get you in and biceps rippling out and trying to pull, trying to pull, trying to pull. And he pulls you over to the boat and goes, whew, you are a hard one to get. But I got you in though. And we think that's what salvation is. Ladies and gentlemen, I would suggest to you that that is an inaccurate view of salvation. Here's what it really is. It's not that you were floating on the water. It's not that you were there struggling and fighting to live and to breathe. Here's what really happened. You were dead at the bottom of the ocean. You were lifeless. You could not struggle for air because you were dead. You were at the deepest, darkest cavern in the ocean at the absolute very bottom. You had no hope. You had no life. You had no breath. You were down there and you were dead. Absolutely dead. But what happened? Jesus and his grace and his mercy and his love. He came down to where you were. And he bent down. And he breathed the breath of life into you. And you became a living soul. He went down to where you are and he breathed into you and he picked you up in his arms and he rescued your life. That's what salvation was. It's him coming to you. You had no hope. You had nothing to do with it. Jesus came and he breathed life into you and you became alive. And when I think about my salvation like that, that gets me excited. That makes me happy. Because I know I was dead, and he brought me to life, and there are people out here that are dead. And guess who's going to bring them to life? Jesus. He's going to breathe into them and bring them back to life. That's what salvation is. God is calling us to be a church on mission, to be a missional church, to go out and share the gospel and spread the gospel. He's not calling us to be comfortable and to be here. And here's what happens. Here's what we do. We come over here and we sit in our houses and on our couch, our comfortable places, and we read the paper. We go, good Lord, this world's a mess. I mean, the government, Ferguson, 
all kind of stuff. You know what, God, you ought to do something about this. God, you ought to do something about this mess. I mean, it's a mess, but God, why are you working on that? I'm going to take a nap. I hope you figure it out. But what is God saying? He's saying you do something about it. He's saying you be missional. You go out and do the work. I've given you my son. I've given you the spirit. He's the paraclete. That's the Greek word for the comforter. He comes alongside you. And when you don't know what to say, the Holy Spirit can say it through you and for you. And that's what he's calling us to do is to be missional. And let me give you another word of encouragement. God, yes, he's calling us to do things across the world. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. But here's a note for you. Why are you going to Africa? Don't bypass Green County. Don't bypass what God has given you in your backyard. What God has given you right here and right now, don't bypass it just to go somewhere else across the world. Because honestly, it's a lot easier for us to get in a plane and go across the world than it is for us to go across the street. Because we don't want to do it. We say somebody else should do it. And God is calling us to be missional, to be his hands and feet, to be the church that represents Jesus Christ. Because Christ is coming back, and he's coming back for his church. God's not going to come back for United Way. He's not going to come back for the United Cancer Society. He's not coming back for Boys and Girls Club. He's not coming back for Habitat Humanity. He's coming back for his church. And what he's going to do is he's going to ask the church, what did you do with what I gave you? What did you do? And you know what we can't say? Well, I mean, Pastor Jimmy Long, he had a lot of great things going on, and they did a lot of stuff. And we had a great elders board and deacon board, and they were out there. They were serving, but God ain't asking you that. He's saying, what did you do? Because you can't respond to God with merits of other people. God is asking, what did you do? Were you missional? Pick up in verse 7. It says, And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and he would live. It's interesting to me that God not only brings the judgment, but he also brings the liberation. He also brings the solution and the remedy. Now understand, and you look at this and you say, why would God send serpents like that? Why would he do something like that? Listen, God is a righteous judge. But he's not a righteous judge if he does not judge justly. So in his justice, he's also being merciful. And what does he do? He sends a remedy. He says, make this staff, the serpent that represents sin, the brass that represents judgment. You hold it, and everyone that looks up at that thing that has been snake-bitten will live. He also brings a solution. Now, the power was not in the staff. It wasn't in the the serpent made of bronze. I really do believe that the power that came into them and brought them back to life was when they acknowledged I'm in sin, and the only solution I have is to look up and look to God. That's the only way that I can live. 
That's the only way. And it's the same for us. The solution for us is to look to God and say, God, what would you have us do? God, how would you have me lead my family? How would you have me raise my kids? How would you have me work this job? How would you have me spend my time in retirement? What would you have me to do? God, I look to you because I realize this generation has been snake bit. And there's certain things that I do that are symptoms of being snake bit. And God, I want to look to you to be my solution. You are the anti-venom. I look to God for healing, for direction. That's where the healing and the power is, is when you look to God. And you say, God, I repent. And he heals you and he restores you. God is merciful in this and he provides a remedy. And I'm almost done. There's something really cool in the New Testament that points back and it's John chapter 3 verse 14. And this was Jesus talking to Nicodemus. He says to Nicodemus, he says, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Oh, okay. This makes a little bit more sense now. Because what Jesus is, he's pointing back to the Old Testament and he's saying, just like Moses lifted that serpent and the people were healed, guess what? I'm going to be lifted up too, but it's going to be on a cross and it's going to be my death for their sin. And all who look to me shall be saved. They will be healed. And the other text here is John 12, 32. It's Jesus talking. He says, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto myself. Wow, that is powerful. Because in his death, being lifted up on a cross, Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men unto myself. Yes, it's a physical representation of him being lifted up, but it's also a spiritual representation for us today that when we lift him up, he draws men unto himself. You know what? I like that because it takes the pressure off of me. I can't save anybody. You can't save anybody. We can't change anybody. So what am I going to do? I'm going to look to the one who can. And I'm going to lift him up. And when he's lifted up, he does the drawing. And that's what you have to understand is when you go out and share the gospel with your family, you go out and share the gospel with this community and with this world, your one responsibility is to lift Jesus up. That's you don't have to come with cool words and, and knowing all of the canon and exegeting and, and, all, and hermeneutics and homiletics and all this kind of stuff. All you got to know is I'm going to lift Jesus. Because when I lift him, he's doing the drawing. He's drawing men's heart unto himself because he drew my heart to him. I didn't want anything to do with him. Matter of fact, I was in sin and I liked it. But Jesus, all the while, while I was out there sinning and doing things against his will, he was constantly drawing me to himself. Drawing me to himself. And as we lift Jesus, he does the drawing. In closing, I look at the children of Israel, and I ask the question, you know, why did it take 40 years? That's a long time. That journey was supposed to take 11 days, and it took 40 years. 40 years of going around the same desert, going around the same mountain, 40 years. Why? Why? And what I see is God and his sovereignty and his mercy and his grace. And these people that see the works of God, they see the fire, they see the Red Sea, their clothes never wear out, they get fresh manna from heaven, they see all these amazing things. And they still turn to God and say, we want to go back to slavery. And I see every time that they get bitter or that they turn and rebel against God, you know what I see God saying? Take another lap. 
another lap. God, I'm complaining, man. I'm tired of all this. This manna is worthless, and I'm just sick and tired of it. Another lap. God, you know, it's hot. I'm complaining. Ain't no water. Moses don't know what he's doing. Another lap. Oh, man. Forty years of another lap. So what does that mean for us? We're walking. We got bitterness and unforgiveness in our heart. Things have happened to us that were out of our control, but we have yet to let it go. We've been holding on to it for 20, 30, 40 years. And you're still dealing with it, and you want to know why. It's because God is saying, take another lap. You got resentment in your heart. You do not love. You do not want to give. God is saying, take another lap. And we're looking at the mountain that we're going around, and we're saying, God, I need you to change this mountain. I'm tired of walking around this same mountain. I've been walking around it for years, God. I need you to do something about this mountain. Change this mountain. And what God is saying to you is I ain't changing the mountain, but I'm using the mountain to change you. That's what he's saying. So he's saying until I see those things begin to fall off of you, you got to take another lap. Until I see that bitterness and unforgiveness fall off of you and that desire for worldly things over me, you got to take another lap and another lap. And then those things begin to fall off of you. You begin to look more like Christ. The stuff that used to bother you don't bother you no more. Because you realize there is a greater glory at stake. I realize my life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. I realize that what Christ has done for me, my job is to lift him up and he's going to take care of everything else. My job is to go and is to be missional and do the work of the ministry. To be the hands and feet of Jesus. And as we lift him up, he's going to draw all men unto himself. That's good news. That's great news. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word this morning. God, we thank you for your hand of mercy, your hand of grace. God, I just pray that the word this morning touched someone, God, that it challenged us, God, that it might have stepped on our toes a little bit. That's a good thing. Um, God, I thank you that even in the disobedience with the children of Israel, even in their complaints and grumbling, God, you were still so merciful. God, I thank you that your mercy is seen throughout the entire scriptures because the truth is the children of Israel That's us. We look at your hand of faithfulness, God. We look at what you've done and we complain. But God, this morning we repent. And we pray, God, that you would challenge us to go and do things we've never done before. To go out and share the gospel with people we have never shared with before. To know that you saving me means that you can save anybody. Restore unto us the joy of our salvation. To remember When you saved our life, when you snatched us up out of the pit and set our feet on solid rock. God, I thank you for this church this morning. I thank you for the word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.